There are over 500 animals on Canada's list of wildlife species at risk. One of these is Danaus plexibus, the monarch butterfly. I sang all night, the moon shone on me through the trees. My name is Sean Willett. This is The Red List. No brothers left, and there will be no more after me. Of all the animals that swim, fly, and crawl around us, insects are probably the most overlooked. If they aren't actively trying to drink your blood or crawl around your kitchen, they are usually an afterthought, too small and secretive to warrant much attention. But there is one type of insect that is impossible to ignore. Butterflies. Butterflies are a really obvious, easy-to-see animal in the environment. They're beautiful. Your eye gets drawn to them. So it's not like a beetle crawling across the ground. It could be just any old beetle, right? That was Boyd Nave, the interior gardener at the Calgary Zoo. So I look after the conservatory areas and the butterfly program. The zoo keeps captive butterflies in its greenhouse gardens, which is where I sat down to talk with Boyd. As we talked, butterflies flitted around our heads, moving between tropical flowers and looping hanging vines. There are dozens of species in the zoo's conservatory, and while many are impressive, there is one species that stands out. One that stands head and shoulders above the rest. The monarch. The king. These big orange and black butterflies are possibly the most iconic insect in North America, and for a good reason. They're beautiful and easy to spot, looking more suited to a tropical jungle than a Saskatchewan prairie. Uh, probably because they are, in fact, from the tropics. You have insects which tend to have local populations. We have a lot of Lepidoptera, local ones. They overwinter here. They've adapted to survive our winters, and so they go dormant. Some like a morning cloak as an adult. Others will overwinter as eggs, some as pupae, some even as like, caterpillars. But in some, some way or other, they survive the winters. Monarchs are still a tropical butterfly. They cannot survive freezing temperatures. It kills them. Seeing monarchs in the Calgary Zoo's humid, vegetation-choked conservatory underscored how out of place they look rambling around southeastern and central Canada, which makes up the northernmost portion of their summer range. These Canadian monarchs are a part of the species' eastern population, which migrates north from their wintering grounds in Mexico every year. As the glaciers started receding after the last ice age, a population of monarch butterflies got into the habit of following spring northwards, and that'd be following the milkweed, which is the only plant they lay eggs on. There's quite a few species of milkweed they can use, but that's the idea, so they follow north. And there's lots of other but butterflies in the tropics that do this as well. Painted lady butterflies go north and the caterpillars feed on thistle. So they're not unique in that respect at all. What does make them unique is how they travel back south. In the fall, they somehow change. So the last generation in the season, triggered by the shorter days, 
the food plant quality declines. The temperatures get cooler at night, so there's more extremes in, in the temperatures. It triggers a genetic change in the last generation of the season. And there's about over 500 genes that are triggered in this whole operation. So the last butterfly of a season comes out, it's more like a marathon runner than a sprinter. So the muscles can actually engage in sustained hours and hours of flight instead of just a few minutes here and there flitting from flower to flower. So it essentially becomes an industrial strength monarch. And it's also non-reproductive, so it can't reproduce anymore. Basically, the reproductive organs are sort of on hold, so to speak. And so that last generation of the fall now turns around and finds its way back to the tropics again. You heard that right. While it can take at least five generations for monarchs to travel up to Canada, they travel back to Mexico in one. Yeah, literally, that, that butterfly that leaves southern Ontario or southern Manitoba will actually fly all the way south. And how they do that is kind of remarkable. No one really quite knows the exact mechanism. There's a number of theories, one of which involves solar angle. They'll pick up the angle of the sun and use that to guide them. Others have identified magnetic sensors inside the antenna, which combined with ultraviolet light will actually pick up the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. And the theory is they can use that to guide them. However they do it, it works, and it works well. Monarchs are able to find their way back to their ancestral wintering grounds in central Mexico every year, where, after a few months, they once again begin their journey up north, in search of the milkweed they need to plant their eggs and feed their young. It's a journey monarchs have taken for millennia, and it's a part of the reason why they have so vividly captured the imagination of people throughout the continent. That one individual, an insect no less, can travel from Canada to America to Mexico in a matter of months is almost beyond belief. It seems like it just shouldn't work. And recently, it hasn't been working. Over the last two decades, the eastern population of monarch butterflies has declined by over 90% and we still aren't quite sure why. Initially, scientists thought that this was due to a shortage of milkweed, the only plant monarchs can use to lay their eggs. People, of course, blame pesticide use, especially specifically herbicide use. They thought, well, we're spraying our fields with more and more effective herbicides. We have genetically engineered herbicide-resistant crops like canola and flax and a few others. You can spray with glyphosate and it kills the weeds, the crop's fine but it kills all the milkweed off. So there is blame there. There's also blame given to GMO crops like corn, and they have bacillus toxin in them, which makes them very resistant to things like corn borer. So it's a natural pesticide that's found in bacteria, genetically engineered into plants to make them resistant to pests. But the pollen also contains that, that toxin and it blows around. And they, there's some indication, well, the butterflies are maybe picking this up. But recent studies that have been done indicate that it isn't really a shortage of milkweed because the populations of butterflies, when, as they start to move more north, breed fairly well. There's high populations often in Ontario, southern Ontario, Manitoba, southern in their normal ranges. So that, that doesn't seem to be the problem. So that, that was considered and it doesn't look like it really holds up scientifically. And neither does the, the genetic GMO crops. That doesn't seem to be impacting them too much either because the numbers are pretty good in the northern part of the range. 
So it, it's actually during the migration south that we're getting a huge drop in population. I should point out that while recent studies have downplayed the relationship between milkweed abundance and the monarch decline, this still remains pretty controversial. But what isn't controversial is the fact that monarchs are losing most of their numbers during their southward migration. A part of what's causing this drop is extreme weather events, which are only becoming more and more common as the Earth's climate changes. But they're very, very susceptible to things like storms on the migration route. So on the way south, if there's a massive storm that goes through, thunder, thunder, tornado, hail, sudden cold snaps that can catch them unawares, these sorts of things can really knock the population down. There's a drought in Texas. They have to go through Texas. So the number of flowers in Texas they need for nectar to power their migration for food source is really low because it's a huge drought. And so that whole pinch point where they have to go through Texas, now they have no food. And so there'll be huge losses just getting through there to the next area where they can get food. And down the southern range, we, there was a huge loss a few years ago, I think better than 80% loss just in the the area where they overwinter because of winter storm. It just, it just killed, killed massive numbers of them, and so there's like 20% left. While an 80% loss in population in a single season sounds almost impossibly devastating, monarchs are not quite on their last legs. Insects, in general, breed pretty fast and can be pushed pretty far before going over the brink. So what happens is the numbers build up really quick, like monarchs lay a lot of eggs, so you don't need very many to start out the season to actually finish off. So I'm not exactly panicking about the huge drop, but it is something to be concerned about, simply because it's not clearly understood why it's happening yet. That uncertainty is what makes the monarch declines so concerning. Unlike some conservation issues, the problems affecting monarch populations are unclear and poorly understood which makes them all the more difficult to fight back against. It's a signal that something's wrong. If you monitor a population like monarchs, and monarchs have been monitored for quite a while, and you see this, it's a rather steady decline. You can see it dropping, dropping, dropping over the last few, few years particularly. So it's very important to identify what is happening. But it turns out it's, it's not a simple thing. So it's going to take a lot more research to actually key in on exactly what's happening or what factors are working together to cause this drop. And while these butterflies may be able to take quite a beating while still being able to recover, they can't hold out against these massive population drops forever. Earlier this year, a study published in Nature found that the eastern population of monarchs has an 11 to 57% chance of going quasi-extinct in the next two decades. That means that unless scientists figure out exactly what is causing these declines and somehow stop them, there's a good chance monarch numbers will fall past the point of no return within our lifetimes. It's a scary thought. Now, let's just stop here for a second. I know what you're feeling. Hearing about this is frustrating. It sucks. It probably feels more than a little hopeless. I mean, first it's the polar bears drowning in the ocean, then it's the frogs getting horrible fungal diseases. Now all the butterflies are mysteriously dying. It's a little soul-sucking to learn about all the ways the world around you is falling apart. 
especially since it so often feels like there's nothing you can really do to help. Conservation, for all of its importance, can be an inaccessible realm of scientists and researchers, professionals with degrees and doctorates. And not that this isn't for good reasons, conservation needs to be methodical, done hand in hand with science. Otherwise, we're liable to just make things worse. Remember from last episode, how we used to think killing predators was good for the rest of the environment? Yeah, we don't want that to happen again. But it can feel distant. This inaccessibility, this disconnect between the public and conservation science can make it harder to care, harder to connect to what's going on in our world. And it can make you feel powerless, even if you want more than anything to help. I've been there. I know. But there's a different way of doing things. A new way, made possible by advances in technology and the collective action of ordinary people. It's called citizen science, and when it comes to monarchs, it might just be what we need to save them. Best part about it is that the only qualification you need is a love of butterflies. Thankfully, a lot of people love butterflies. Max Larravee is one of them. In fact, he can't remember a time when he didn't love butterflies. By the time I was three, according to my mom, I knew 32 names of butterflies in Latin, English, and French, and then it never stopped. Max is the head of research and collections at the Montreal Insectarium, and is a member of Canada's Monarch Conservation Experts Panel, which first met back in 2014. Conservation efforts for the species have been a collaborative effort between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. This meant that Max and the other members of the panel needed to decide what Canada's role in this conservation effort would be. We first identified that on an international level for the migratorial population, our best and most important contribution would be to maximize breeding conditions for monarchs in Canada so that when they come here in the summer, we can boost those populations as much as we can by providing them the best breeding habitat possible. While the quality of monarchs' breeding habitat is only one factor impacting their population numbers, Max describes it as low-hanging fruit. In other words, it's something that we can work on immediately and hopefully see immediate benefits. Doing actions that will reduce the extreme weather events, it's a long-term process if you want, but improving on habitat quality, improving on the connectivity of this habitat during migration is something that we can do in the short term. And of course, looking at breeding habitat for monarchs means looking at milkweed, the only plant that their caterpillars are able to survive on. Like I said earlier, the importance of milkweed is a controversial topic, at least among butterfly scientists. While some researchers say that a lack of milkweed plants is limiting the size of the monarch population, others are saying that there is more than enough and that other factors are more to blame. We wanted to know if this is the case in Canada. And if it is, where is this the case and where it isn't so that we can better guide future conservation measures? But this was only the first step. 
Then we wanted to know, in, in a more detailed way, where do monarchs reproduce in Canada? Because we, we've always taken for granted that they breed on milkweed, but it doesn't happen everywhere in the same quantity, in the same density as well. And Canada being such a big country and monarchs having the potential to breed over such a large area, we, we will not be able to be you know, optimizing their breeding habitats everywhere. So we need to be strategic about it. We need to make sure down the road that these breeding habitats that we're focusing on are linked so that they facilitate migration in the spring and uh, in the fall. This is harder in practice than it is on paper, mostly because there's a lot we don't know about monarchs in Canada. We're trying to figure out if there's regions where monarchs are more prone to breed, because we don't even know that. The one thing we know for sure in Canada is where monarchs roost when they migrate in the fall, which is along the Great Lakes, and we've done a, a great job protecting of some of the major roosting areas. But we would have been hard-pressed to say this region of eastern Ontario, this region of southern Quebec, is a monarch breeding hotspot. This lack of information, combined with the massive scale of this project, left Max and his colleagues with a pretty big problem. They couldn't do all of this on their own. At the rate at which monarch population is diminishing, changing, there's no way we'd be able to gather the information at this scale that will allow us to enact rapidly and, and make a difference. Thankfully, there's an easy solution. Citizen science. Citizen science is, fittingly, science conducted by citizens, usually at a massive scale. Which is something that wasn't really possible in the pre-internet world. Several of these problematics need the contribution of citizens in order to shed light on this, and now we have the capacity to do it. We have the capacity to link people through the internet, to link them to our databases. We have the capacity also to do quality control on the work they do and to be in touch with them and help them. Using citizen science, researchers are able to gather data much faster at a much larger scale, something that Max and his colleagues desperately needed. And so, Mission Monarch was born. This citizen science initiative has tasked people with finding milkweed patches, recording their locations, and counting the number of monarch eggs, caterpillars, and butterflies they are able to find. Users submit this data to the Mission Monarch website, where it is cataloged, reviewed, and used to better map out where monarchs are breeding and at what densities. Additionally, the data collected by Mission Monarch will be used to test the accuracy of existing population models for the species. We've done a lot of modeling effort of milkweed distribution, of monarch distribution, based on existing data. Mission Monarch is, is like the icing or the validation to all this scientific modeling work that we've done. So that will be the first step. We'll use this to compare the reality, the snapshot that Mission Monarch provides us with the long-term trends that we were able to detect. Of course, citizen science does have one big caveat. You need citizens. Citizens that care about what you were trying to do. You can build the best online platform possible, but if you don't have the human network behind it that takes ownership of it and that believes in the cause and, and you could go and say spread the, the good word about it, you will not reach your objectives. Thankfully, this shouldn't be too hard for Mission Monarch. Like I said earlier, Everyone loves butterflies. And everyone really loves monarchs. Monarchs are just tied to 
Canadian and American and Mexican cultures in so many ways. It's the point of contact for youth, children, and even adults with nature. And so when they're absent, you kind of go, huh, where are they? What's going on? So it's a little bit like the canary in the coal mine thing. We're sort of looking at that going, okay, well, they're not here. What's the reason for it? What are we doing as a species, a culture, that, that is causing this problem? And by translating this love of monarchs into action, Boyd points out that it's more than just butterflies that stand to benefit. I'd like to think of it as a, a toehold, a conservation toehold into people's psyche to make them think about it. And the whole process in general. It's not because it's not just monarch butterflies. If we're seeing an impact like this with monarch butterflies, there's other impacts we're not seeing. Like we're not seeing all the other species of butterflies that are probably being affected as well, or insects. And then there's birds that depend on them. So there's a whole chain of dominoes that, that happens out there. It's like a flare going off. You see a flare going off, okay. I wonder wonder what's under the flare. It should actually breed some sense of greater self-awareness in people. I know it does in people who have, have an interest in the environment, an interest in ecology, the naturalists in all of us. And it, it should raise questions that need to be answered. And it should actually make us look on a broader scale too, not just about the butterflies. This sense of awareness is exactly what Max hopes to achieve with Mission Monarch. Other than the data, of course. He believes that citizen science, for all of its practicality, also has another benefit, one that sounds pretty obvious. It creates citizen scientists. The plus value of this is that concerned citizens participating into these initiatives get back in touch with their local environment, get increased awareness of what is going on around them. They are the ones that will be now concerned and will voice their uh, disapproval of what's happening. And I, I don't think there's any other kind of scientific approach that will be able to make a difference this fast. And monarchs are a great example of that. It's not just the people on the ground gathering the data that help protect it, but it's the ones that are concerned about it will make sure that their stakeholders are aware that this is an important issue for them. This is why citizen scientists are needed and why it's so important for as many people as possible to be engaged with science and conservation. The future of our planet can't just be in the hands of a few scientists and researchers, if only because there aren't enough of them to make any real change by themselves. And besides, those scientists aren't the only ones living on this planet. We all share the Earth, and, in a way, we all share a responsibility to protect it. Just because we're such a dominant species on the planet now, we have such a profound impact on the environment around us, even extending to the climate, that we do have to take that responsibility on our shoulders. So to me, it's a responsibility. If you just turn your eyes away and look away, it's not acceptable. You have to do something. But that responsibility doesn't matter unless we're able to exercise that responsibility unless we're able to do something to actively work with others towards a better future. That's why citizen science is important. And it's why I'm feeling optimistic about the future of the monarch. Across the entire continent, 
Thousands of people, scientists and citizens alike, are working in unison to save this species. So, even though things look dire, even though there is a lot that needs to be done, we're doing it. Together. And together, humans can do some pretty amazing stuff. Individually, we're just kind of wussy little things without claws or fangs that, you know, are just soft and tasty. But as, as a collective, we have incredible influence. My name is Sean Willett, and this has been The Red List. If you want to help Mission Monarch, visit mission-monarch.org and follow their instructions. You'll have to wait for spring to start looking for more butterflies, but you can still help look for milkweed and maybe plant some of your own. It couldn't hurt. This show is brought to you by CJSW 90.9 FM. Calgary's independent radio station. You can find the show and many more CJSW podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and CJSW.com. I would also like to kindly ask that if you are able to, please subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and review while you're there. It helps, and it gives me warm, fuzzy feelings. You can also follow me on Twitter at RedListCJSW. I tweet about conservation stuff and about updates on the show, so follow if you want more opinions about conservation biology and pictures of animals. I go for the low-hanging fruit sometimes, too. The show's theme song is Deuteronomy 2.10 by the Mountain Goats, and the rest of the music was provided by Jazzar and Poding to Bear off of Free Music Archive. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time. Keep watching.